0: In his book, historian and author, Winston Groom, who is more famous for his book Forrest Gump, but in his book 1942, he takes a snapshot look at the year 1942 in the life of America. He decides to do a case study, a whole uh, picture study of what that year looked like, and he makes the preposition that 1942 was probably the most pivotal year in American history. Now, David McCullough, the historian uh, who wrote John Adams, he makes the same argument for 1776. And I think both of them are probably right, but some of you, maybe in this room, are old enough to remember 1942. Maybe as a child, but you may remember 1942. As 1942 started, America was devastated. America had been attacked by, uh, by the Japanese army at Pearl Harbor just a month before the beginning of 1942. And America was reeling, and the Japanese army was on the march. In the Pacific, the Japanese, within the next month, would take Wake Island, they would take the Philippines, then they would cause what was at the time, and still to this day, the greatest surrender of any American forces on the island of Corregidor. The Japanese were moving island by island, headed towards... Australia. At the beginning of 1942, in Europe, Germany controlled most of the mainland. They were on the march. They were bombing Great Britain every night uncontested. In the east, the German armies moved through the Balkans, they moved through Poland untouched and moved into the very heart of Russia. America was reeling. It was a very scary and difficult time as 1942 started. But by the end of 1942, everything had seemed to change. See, after the Battle of Midway, at the end of 1942, America had stemmed the tide of the Japanese Navy. Matter of fact, we destroyed most of their larger naval forces at the Battle of Midway, which was not expected. By the end of 1942, Captain Doolittle had taken his raiders in Bonn, Tokyo, In Japan, and while it didn't do a lot of damage for the first time, the Japanese people realized that the American air power could reach their shores. By the end of 1942, we had a group of Marines that were holding on to the island of Guadalcanal and eventually would hold that island, stopping the island hopping of the Japanese. On the mainland of Europe and Asia, Russia had held off the German army in a horrible winter battle at the gates of Stalingrad, and that winter would eventually destroy the German army. America and her allies had gotten into the war on that front by invading North Africa, and they were making a push at the end of 1942 to go both east and north in a push that wouldn't stop until Berlin. 1942, pivotal year. What a snapshot in the history of America. If you went and looked at all of the things that happened from the beginning of the year to the end of the year, it's incredible the events that took place. And no one could have predicted how that year would have turned out. Because you see, in 1942, they didn't know it was critical. They just knew we were facing difficulty, they just knew we were facing tough times. But looking back, it's easy as a snapshot to see that it's critical. And that's kind of the reason we take snapshots, isn't it? It's kind of the reason we take pictures. See, we take pictures to what? To capture a moment in time. We want to capture something that's going on in our life, a momentous event, an occasion. And and we take those pictures so that later on we can study them and remember what that time was like. But the problem today in our culture and our society is while we still love to take pictures, probably more than ever since everyone carries a, a camera around with them on their phone, but the pictures we take have become filter crazy. No one takes unfiltered pictures anymore. Your camera has a filter on it so that the moment you take a picture, if you don't like the color, you can change the color. If you don't like the light, you can change the light. If you don't like a part of it, you can enlarge it and crop that part out. You can even go on your phone and take a picture, and on one of the social media sites, you can add dog noses and dog ears to your face. I don't look good in dog nose and dog ears. We filter everything. And while that may be great for your social media site, it's not good for our personal lives. Because see, what happens with filters is they blur reality. They blur and distort what really is the the person that you're taking a picture of. I think sometimes in our life when we think about how God sees us, we like to think that God sees us with the same filter that everybody else sees us with. See, we put on these faces and we put on these masks and we we pretend to be something that maybe we're really not and, and we somehow cross our fingers and hope that when God looks down on us, He sees us through those same filters. But God looks at us unfiltered. See, God looks at us as we truly are. And our question for us this morning is that if God were pulling out his iPhone to make him anthropomorphic, if he pulled out his iPhone and he focused it down on First Baptist Blowing Rock this morning and took an unfiltered snapshot of you, what would he see? Would he see the same thing that you see? If he took a picture of your life this week, an unfiltered picture, a picture of of you laid bare, reality, what would he see? What would it say to him about your priorities and about the things that you love and the things that you want to do? Because you see, whether we like it or not, God's view of us is unfiltered. In the next couple of weeks, I'm wanting to look at this passage we're about to read and look at an unfiltered picture of three people and the difference they made in the nation of Israel. Three people that at this juncture where we come to in 1 Samuel 16 are about to determine the future of all of Israel. Now, two of them are named. We know one is a king and one is a prophet. One is not even named yet. But at this juncture, at this critical moment, everything's about to change. And we get a glimpse in this simple passage of the way God sees things. The way God sees things without filter. And what I'm hoping is this morning, just like 1942 was pivotal, and just like this passage is pivotal, you and I can look at our lives and see the pivotal moments and understand that God wants us to experience them without filters. And the world is looking for some people that project Jesus Christ without filters. You see, I think this one passage this morning will give us an incredible insight into how God moves and how God works and how God wants to work in your life, both as individuals and as a church. And so for the next couple of weeks, we're just going to read one verse. Now I may throw in a couple of other verses, but this verse says it all. Now I know some of you, um, I took 35 uh, weeks to cover Matthew 5, 6 and 7, and so you know, me covering one verse in three weeks is no big deal. Okay? I I can get it done. But we're going to look at the three people he describes, the three characters. And we're going to look at how God used them and moved in them and, and try to look at ourselves to see how we stand up. So I want to read the passage to you. 1 Samuel chapter 16. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul? For I have rejected him as king over Israel. For fill your horn with oil and be on your way, and I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. For I have chosen one of his sons to be king. Everything you need to know about what's going on in this unfiltered picture is labeled here. Three people. You have the king of Israel, Saul. You have the prophet of Israel, the priest of Israel. You have Samuel. And then you have this unnamed son of Jesse that later on we will find to be King David. But in that picture, those three men, they represent every one of us in this room. We find ourselves with one of those characteristics. You see, after we get through in the next couple of weeks, you will discover that either you this morning are Saul, or you are Samuel, or you are David. Now I know we all like to say David, and you probably are already writing at the top of your page, "Pastor, I'm David." Amen. But remember, this is unfiltered. This is looking at the real us, and this whole moment. In It is a hinge in everything else that's to happen. Now, we're going to look at Samuel next week, and we'll look at David two weeks from now. But this morning, I'm going to focus on Saul because Saul is the king of Israel. Now, I know Saul gets a, a, a lot of bad rap because we read him from backwards on. We like to read Saul and all the things that he did that were bad and the crazy things that he did later in his life. And we think of Saul as a bad guy. Saul was a man that God trusted to lead Israel. He was the first king Israel had ever had. Israel never had had a king before this because they determined that God was their king. They didn't need a king. From Moses to Joshua, they were not kings. God still ruled. God still reigned. And after Joshua, they had a group of people they called the Judges that that ruled uh, loosely with God's leadership. They never had a king. Now they had prophets and priests that would speak for God since God was considered their king. But they find themselves in the promised land in Canaan and all of a sudden all of these other nations have kings. And since all these other nations had kings, they got a, a little glimpse of everybody else is doing it. And so they went to God and said, everybody else has kings, we want a king. That's basically what they did. God said, you don't need a king, I'm your king. He said, please God, everybody else has a king. And they come to look at us, and we don't have a king. And so he said, okay, I'll give you a king. And he selected Saul to be the first king. And Saul was a good king. But the only problem is while Saul was king, almost during his entire reign, the nation of Israel was at war. All of those people that we read earlier that, uh, that Caleb and Joshua and the other ten spies, Saul in the land, the Amalekites and the Philistines and the Amorites, they are now at war with those people. And so as they are at war with those people, Saul makes some critical mistakes during several battles that causes God to remove his blessings from his life now the first instance we have that that happens is happens in 1 Samuel 13 and you don't have to turn there Saul's getting ready to battle the Philistines. He's getting ready to go in, and he's got his army ready. And one of the traditions, even from the time of Joshua, is before they would go into battle, and you can maybe remember this from uh, when they went and they marched around the city of Jericho. Before they ever go into battle, the priest or the prophet would come and bless the army. And the way he would bless the army is he would do a burnt offering to God. They would create an altar, and they would put a burnt offering to God so that he would bless what they were about to do. And so they are getting ready to do this and their army is ready and the enemy army is on the other side and Saul is waiting for Samuel to show up because it is Samuel's job to light the burnt offering and pray for the army. Well, Samuel's running late. So Saul waits and Samuel doesn't show and Saul waits and Samuel doesn't show and Saul finally says, hey, why do I need Samuel? I'm the king. And he decides to light the burnt offering on himself and in his disobedience he broke God's heart. But God decided to give him a second chance. A couple of months later, they're battling a different group. They're battling the Amalekites, and you can find that in 1 Samuel 15. They're battling the Amalekites, and God told them before they ever went into battle with the Amalekites that when you fight them, you kill everything. Now, I know looking back on that today, that sounds harsh, and it's critical. But you see, what God was doing was protecting the nation of Israel from intermarrying and falling into these faiths that had false gods. And it's harsh and it's brutal, and we don't try to justify it today. It is part of its time from uh, 3,000 years ago, 2,500 years ago. Uh, we, don't, we don't try to justify it today, but it's a reality. God said, kill them all. Kill all the animals. Kill all the sheep. Kill all the goats. Kill everything so that people will know that God is in charge. So Saul goes in to fight the Amicalites, and as they're fighting, he recognizes that they've got a lot of good stuff. They've got some nice cattle, nicer cattle than what Saul had. They've got some nice sheep, nicer sheep than what Saul had. So Saul determines in his heart, I'll kill everything except the nicest of sheep and the nicest of cattle. And then his army surrounds the Amicalites. They kill all the Amicalites, and they bring the king of the Amicalites before Saul so Saul can kill him personally. And Saul says, listen, I'm going to spare him. You know why? Because he's one of the strongest kings in all of this area, and if he becomes my slave, then everybody's going to think I'm the biggest and best king. And so he spares his life, and he is disobedient. And Samuel comes and says, what have you done? And the Bible tells us that in that disobedience, because of that disobedience, in 1 Samuel 16, 14, it says the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. Now that idea of God's power and God's purpose leaving him, if you wanted to make it sound simple, God took his anointing off of Saul's shoulders. God said, you will no longer have my power, you will no longer have my blessing, and I'm removing it from you. Now, what is this thing that that he calls anointing? What is this blessing that he takes away? Well, the word anointing is used throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament to determine or to describe God's supernatural power on his people. Used in the New Testament to describe this supernatural power for direction and for purpose that comes over God's people when their lives are in line with His will and His Word. The Bible, matter of fact, says in 1 John 2.20 in the King James, it calls it unction. Unction. In the NIV it says, each one of you have been anointed by God. I remember when I was a little kid, uh, my grandparents would use that word unction. They would say, that preacher sure has Unction. I never knew what that meant. I mean, it was like the measles or the mumps or something wrong with him. Unction simply means that there was something different about his preaching. There was a power there. There was a release there. Beyond just being a charismatic personality, beyond just being a good communicator, beyond just being someone that could print out and, and, and share God's Word, there was a release of power when that person preached. It was the anointing of God on them. It's the same thing that Elijah had when he stood before the 700 prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel like we talked about last week. He was anointed. It's the same thing that David had when he stood there with that slingshot facing Goliath. He was anointed. When Peter stood up at Pentecost and began to preach to the great crowds, there was an anointing that came over him. When Stephen, one of the first deacons, went in front of the Pharisees and began to preach about the grace and love of Jesus Christ, before they stoned him, the Bible said there was an anointing on his face, You see, the Bible is clear that there is a supernatural Holy Spirit release of power and boldness available to each Christian. It's available to you and I. It's available to the church so that we might complete the task that God has for us. Every one of us can have it. It's not talking about um, your salvation. It's not talking about the presence of the Holy Spirit. You receive the Holy Spirit when He comes in your heart. When you accept Jesus Christ, you get all of the Holy Spirit you need. This isn't an extra dose. This isn't something extra that comes along later. You get all that you need. Remember I told you the key is not to be uh, get something more of the Holy Spirit. When people say, well, I'm filled with the Holy Spirit, it's not that he, you get more of Him, it's that He gets more of you. When you get out of the way and give Him all of you, all of a sudden there is a release in power. And that's available to everyone. And that is the very thing that Saul lost. I don't think we can understand that today. I don't think we understand how significant that is. You see, what what happens with this anointing is it's not something you can work up. It's not something you can generate in your own strength. Sometimes in churches we think if we just sing another song or we just sing it the right way or, or we just do this or we do that that somehow we can work up this anointing of God. It's not something you work up. It's something you pray down something that God releases from heaven. And it happens when our lives find itself lining up with God's will and God's word. And the moment that happens, there is a supernatural release of God's power in your life and in the life of the church. And all of a sudden, Saul lost it. And if you were to look at Saul filtered, you would say that he is still the king. But if you looked at Saul unfiltered, you would see he has no more spiritual power. He still wore the crown, he just didn't have God's heart anymore. And what I want to suggest to you this morning is that the same thing happens to Saul stayed the king for 20 years without the anointing of God. Why do you think he was so miserable? Why do you think he, he did so many crazy things? Because he was trying to pretend something that he didn't have all along. And instead of going back and finding out how he lost it, he just kept going on pretending. And I see it happen all the time in Christians' lives. We don't see the power. We don't see the boldness. We don't see the purposes of God coming out in our life. And so we think it's got to be somebody else's fault. If only we would have sung that song. If only the preacher would have said these things. If only this would have happened. No, it happens because we take ourselves out of the line where God's power comes. And this morning for just a few minutes, I want you to think about how common and how dangerous it is for churches and for Christians to move on their own without the anointing of God. You say, well, how do you know? Well, It's always characterized by living in yesterday. See, many people, the pastor R.T. calls Saul from this moment on yesterday's man. Because his greatest days were behind him. He was still king 20 years, still had the crown, but his best days were behind him. And what you'll find in many churches, what you'll find in many Christians' lives is their best Christian days are behind them. And that's sad. Because you see, there is no retirement in the kingdom of God. There is no time off. There is no away time. Until the moment that God calls you home, you and I have a responsibility to allow the anointing of God to run over and to overflow into other people's lives so they might see Jesus in us. But what's sad is, and I see this happen time and time again, when you ask people, what is God doing in your life? We want to give a testimony about something that happened 10 years ago. Or something that happened 15 years ago. That's your conversion experience. That's not your testimony. You see, a testimony is what did God do today? What did God do yesterday? What happened in your life this last week that if God wouldn't have shown up, you'd have been in trouble? Churches operate in it. Their best days are behind them. They talk about the good old days and how it used to be. And Christians want to talk about an experience they had 10 years ago or 15 years ago or 20 years ago at a revival or at a camp. And there's nothing happening today. Why? Because you've lost the anointing of God. And Saul lost the anointing of God. And in an instant, he became yesterday's man. One of my passions in ministry from the time I got into ministry was to work and try to discover how churches that had been faithful and and were growing and and were doing ministry, all of these churches across our country that at one time God was pouring out His blessing. And all we began to see from the 70s on is those churches that in the 40s and 30s and 50s and even 60s were growing and, and, and God was doing such incredible work. They were changing their community. And all of a sudden these churches started dying. They were plateaued. They stopped reaching their communities. They stopped doing things for God. I wanted to find out why. How does that happen? Many of those churches closing their doors. What happened to them? I can give you a lot of various reasons, but it all falls under the category they lost their anointing. They lost the supernatural power of God. Oh, they kept the doors open and they kept going and they kept doing spiritual things, but God's power was not there. So whether it's an individual like Saul or its churches, we all follow the same path and we all are in danger of losing the power and the anointing of God for our future. Romans tells us that the gifts of God are irrevocable. They don't go away. God's calling on your life doesn't go away. But the power to implement it can. So how does a church, how does an individual lose its anointing? The same way Saul did couple of things for you to think about. And this, and this is not a three points and a pull on top of that. I just want you to think about this in your heart and ask yourself. Snapshot how you line up. Well, the first thing that caused him to lose it is he got arrogant. Pride. Pride has destroyed, destroyed more ministries and more Christians than anything else. Instead of waiting for Samuel to do it the way God asked him to do it, he decided that God's Word didn't apply to him. He was bigger than that, Right? He was better than that. Bigger than the rules. Those things didn't matter to him. He can go ahead and like this thing. And in his arrogance, he stepped out of God's be- willingness and he stepped out of God's will. I wonder how many of us tell ourselves when we read the Word of God, oh, that doesn't apply to me. I don't have a problem with that. You guys can, you guys can do that. I, I don't have to do that. See, this, this is not a book of suggestions. It's not even a book of commandments. It is a book of healing and help to help you walk in a passionate following of God, to pursue holiness. Once you become a believer, once you become a Christian, your goal is to become more like Jesus every day until the day that He brings you home so that the world around you can see Christ in you through our actions, through our attitudes, through our hearts. And when we begin to think that we are more important than God which we don't communicate it that way, but that's the way it happens in our mind. We set ourselves up in a dangerous place. You see, he was arrogant. He tried doing it in his own power. He said, we're going to fight this battle. We don't need, you know, the Samuel special prayer and God's anointing. We're going to do it ourselves. And, and, and I've heard somebody say, you know, the Holy Spirit could take away his power from the churches in America and 90% of them would go on and no one could tell a difference. What does that say about us? You see, we come to church to do church instead of come seeking God's anointing and God's healing and God's power in our lives. So many people come to check it off a little legalistic check mark that they've created in their head that somehow that's going to make you more spiritual. Listen, you can sit in the pews of this place every Sunday from now until the time that Jesus comes. And if you have not had an anointed calling of God on your life, you're missing it. It's not about how great your notes are. It's not about how much you learn from me, how much you memorize. What it matters is how much you had an encounter with a holy God and He's touched your life. Listen, I'm tired of doing ministry in my own strength. I want to be a church that does things and dreams of things that can't be done without God. I want to go stand on the Red Sea and know that if God doesn't show up, we drowned. It's called walking by faith. We struggle with it. And since we struggle with it, we decide to walk in our own power. You want me to tell you what that looks like in our lives? We do whatever we want, whatever we feel good about, whatever we think is is nice or right, and then we yell at God to come with us, don't we? And then we call it God's will. I've had couples come into my office that were living together. I'm not going to get on a morality play. They were living together, they want to get married. He said, we feel it's God's will for us to get married. I said, it's not. So, said, what? I say, I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just telling you, if you're already living together, then you're living in sin. And God's will is never sin. It's not. No matter how much we love each other, no, how much it sounds good, it's not. And God is not going to put his blessing on something when it has started in sin. They said, well, what do we do? I said, move out from each other and spend a couple of weeks, a couple of months, a long time living apart, setting up yourself to pursue God's purposes in your life. And then you can begin to follow it. You see, we do what we want, what feels good, what we like, and say, God, come along. This is God's will. No, what God says is, I'm going to go over here, and I'm going to be doing this. You find me and come with me and get your life in line with me. He tried to do it in his own strength. He tried to do it on his own timetable. He wanted to do it when he wanted to do it instead of waiting for God. He was arrogant. He was selfish. It all revolved around him. It revolved around what he wanted, what he liked, and what he was comfortable with. And I've seen pride and selfishness destroy more Christians and more churches than anything else in my mind. Because instead of seeking God's will, we seek Rusty's will or your will, or whatever the will of the majority is, instead of finding what God wants. See, that's why Moses lost everything. You want to go read one of the saddest parts of the Old Testament? Go read Moses' last words when God says, Joshua's taking over, he's going to go over to the promised land. But God said, I'm going to let you get a glimpse. And Moses sits on a hill overlooking the promised land and thinks of what could have been if he'd have just been obedient. Man, I don't want that to be my life. I want to know that I followed God's purposes. That doesn't mean I'm perfect, but it means that I submit myself to Him. Pride will rob you of the anointing of God. The second thing that robbed him of the anointing of God was he sinned. God simply said, which was God's word, kill everybody, don't spare anyone. And he decided that that didn't apply to him and he was disobedient. See, God's Word will always lead us to obedience. And I've given you this definition before, and parents, I hope this helps. Obedience is simply what you're called to do, when you're called to do it, with the right heart attitude. What you're called to do, when you're called to do it, with the right heart attitude. If you take any of those away, it's not obedience. See, you can do what you're supposed to do, but if you do it with the wrong attitude, it's not obedience. You can do what you're supposed to do, but if you don't do it when you're supposed to do it, it's not obedience. And you see, God told him to do something, and instead of doing something, he made excuses. Now, there's this whole big movement in America today, grace movement, for lack of better words. And it sounds great. It's this idea that God's grace covers everything, which it does. God's grace is free. Yes, it is. But what they've done is they've taken it a step further to say God's grace will always excuse anything that you do. Now, in God's view of us, that's true. God's forgiven you, and His grace is sufficient to cover every sin. But as long as we live in this fleshly body, we are called to pursue God's power and presence. Holiness is what the New Testament calls it. And grace is not an excuse to live however you want. Go read Paul's words. Should I continue on sinning as grace increases? No! We are called to to not live perfect lives, but to live lives pursuing God. And that means obedience, and that means sin will always destroy your anointing. The moment he decided he was not going to obey God's Word, he stepped out of line for what God had. You see, listen, we're going to give an account one day. Churches are going to give an account one day. Do you understand that? Do you know that... Like you and I sin, churches corporately sin. We, we sin in the way we act, in the way we respond, in the way we treat people. We sin for the decisions that we've made that have cost the kingdom of God people. And we're going to have to give an account for it someday. Many times I've seen churches that were on fire doing what God called them to do that God was leading them in a direction that some in the church just like 10 that decided they didn't want to go, didn't want to go and that little vocal minority ruined the day and led them astray and that church became yesterday's church instead of tomorrow's church. Sin, arrogance and the third thing is he grieved the Holy Spirit. The Bible says in Ephesians 4.30, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit with whom you are sealed. The Bible says God's heart was grieved by Saul's behavior. 1 Thessalonians 5.19 says, Do not put out the Spirit's fire. Do you know what quench the Spirit means... you know what quench means? He quenched God's heart within him. That didn't mean God left him. It didn't mean he lost his salvation. What it meant was he broke God's heart to the point that God's anointing was no longer there. He grieved it. Now go back to that snapshot. This week, your life. Today, your life. This morning, your life. I wonder how many of us have grieved the Holy Spirit just today through our negativity, through our cynicism, through our pessimism, through our attitude. Do you understand that when you break God's heart, his anointing leaves you? He still loves you. Understand, listen, none of this has to do with your relationship to God. You'll break his heart. It doesn't cause him to love you any less. Matter of fact, there's nothing you can do this morning to make him love you more than he already does. So stop trying to earn something you already have. And there's nothing you can do to make him love you less. But you can break his heart, and when you break his heart, he takes his power away from you. The Holy Spirit won't share his glory with something else in your life. We grieve the Holy Spirit all the time with our attitudes, with our words, with the way we treat people. Cynicism, greatest sin going on in the church today. Negativity. Instead of giving things the benefit of doubt, we automatically assume the worst. We automatically are trying to find fault. We automatically are trying to look for the negative in a circumstantial situation. Instead of saying, God, teach me. God, show me. I don't like it personally, but God, I'm leaving it up to you to teach me and show me. I've told you the story before in one of my churches that we had the children sitting over here, and and I don't know if all of you can see when the children are here, but there's some of the songs that we sing. The children sing down there, and they sing it in children's choir. And it's, it's encouraging to me to watch them worship. And I was in a church, and in our church, they had like that, but I had a big group of children. And we were singing one of the songs like, um, Never Let Go, Never Run Out On Me, God's Love. Oh, no, you never let go, never run out on me. And there was a little kid that was just dancing. They were going. I'm serious. I mean, they were just happy. And they were singing it to the top of their lungs. And and they kind of stepped out into the aisle. And I was sitting up on the platform and I watched all of these people. (laughs) Right? We're all dancing. Where's his parents? Right? We don't even have to say anything. Just look at them. And we quenched the Spirit. I wonder who God was honored by more on that worship that morning. That little kid that was worshiping in spirit and truth and didn't even understand what he was doing just loved Jesus and was letting his whole body express it or all the people that missed out on the power of God because they were worried that he was doing something that they didn't like. Now, that's, that's an extreme, but we do it Every Sunday. Somebody cuts us off in the parking lot. Somebody doesn't smile at us in the hallway. And we allow it to rob us of the anointing of God. Church, let me ask you. If we were to take that snapshot this morning, unfiltered, would we see the anointing of God in your life? Would we see the power of God being released in your decisions and in the things that you're doing? And you see, the worst part about it with Saul is he had a chance to turn around. Right before this moment in First Samuel 16, he had a chance to repent. Because you remember when David was about to lose his anointing because of Bathsheba? What did he do? He repented. God, he poured out his heart, God, I'm so sorry, I want it back. But you know what Saul did instead of repenting? First of all, he attacked the one who was anointed after him. He attacked David because he was jealous. We do the same thing. When God no longer is doing things at our church and it's doing it at the church down the road, what do we do? We Point our finger and talk bad about him, Right? We should be figuring out why it's not happening here instead of downplaying what's going on somewhere else. And we should be celebrating. Listen, I don't care if it's Presbyterian, Methodist, charismatic, independent, no denomination. If God's moving in the body of Christ somewhere, I need to be excited about it. And if God's moving in your life in ways that He's not moving in mine, instead of me getting onto you and saying, hey, don't dance, I need to say, why am I not dancing? He attacked David because he was jealous of him. And then he did something even worse. He went and tried to manufacture what only God could do. He went and hired some witches. He said, hey, you guys come and tell me what God is saying because I'm not getting hearing from God anymore and I want to see God do things. And it backfired on him. And we do the same thing when we don't sense God's power in our life, when we feel like our prayers aren't being answered, when our worship's not the same, when it's just not the way it used to be. Instead of going and finding out why... We pretend. Those filters. So we sing a little louder. Give a little more. That's going to make everything better. Churches, when they're getting on the verge of dying, instead of finding out why they're dying, what they do is they just add more programs because it seems if you're busier, then surely you're, you're growing, right? No. No. If you feel like this morning that the anointing of God has left you because of pride and arrogance or because of sin or because you've quenched the Spirit, the thing that you do is you get on your knees before a holy God and say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I don't want to go on tomorrow without your direction, without your power. I don't want to attempt it in my own strength. So let me ask you again. Is the anointing of God evident in your life? Because this may be a critical juncture. See, for some of you, this might be 1942. Started out with a struggle. But maybe God can turn it all around if you trust Him. But what I'm afraid is for many of you, it's going to be 1 Samuel 16. You're going to hear with your ears and you're not going to hear with your heart. And God's anointing is going to leave. And you'll keep going to church and keep doing the Christian thing and but it's just miserable. There's no power. There's no passion. And it just becomes ritual and routine. God never meant it to be that way. Snapshot. Ten years from now, if we look back on June 11th, 2017, what would your picture look like? Unfiltered.